The following lecture was produced by the Rhode Island Student Assistance Services with funding from the Rhode Island Department of Health. Hi there, and welcome to the Rhode Island Youth Mental Health Webinar Series. This week's topic, Stronger Together, presented by Jordan Hagar. Remember, your feedback is important to us. So please fill out the survey in the description below for your chance to win a $100 gift card. Thank you. All of these webinars that we've been doing during the pandemic have been part of our regional prevention efforts, and we're delighted that these are supported by the Department of Behavioral Health Disabilities Hospitals, BHDDH. So today, I am really pleased to in introduce Jordan Hagar. She's a member of the East Bay Regional Coalition, a clinical social worker here in Rhode Island with over 15 years of social work experience. Her audience and clients have been children, adolescents, families. She's treated a wide range of disorders, including anxiety, depression, adjustment disorders, trauma, behavior disorders, ADD, um, environmental, so social, and family-based disruptions as well. She's currently a professor at the uh, social work department at Providence College, of which I am an alumni. Um, she's also available for teaching, providing clinical supervision. She consults on a number of projects and will offer continuing education workshops like we're experiencing today. So without further ado, hopefully, I am really delighted to introduce Jordan Hagar. Uh, so why this workshop? We're going to have three sections to this workshop and uh, it's going to be, first we're going to look at why this is important. Why do we talk about mental health uh, with non-mental health professionals? And then we are also going to look at um, what mental health is and and look at some of the some of the information in general about mental health and then we will have a section discussing how do we approach somebody when we have some concerns okay so the first reason that we are discussing mental health with non-mental health providers is that the significance of mental health is very much underestimated so you can see here we have some numbers the one in five u.s adults experiencing mental illness one in six youth and that prevalence is much higher than many people suspect we can also also see here that suicide is the second leading cause of death and very often substance use and mental health concerns are present in those um, situations. There's also a high prevalence of co-occurring substance use and mental health concerns. And so when those go together, we have uh, even more complex um, situations unfolding. So we have the fact that the significance is often over, uh, the prevalence is often overlooked. And then when we are faced with concerns about mental health, we very often are missing it completely, um, even when it is there in front of us. And part of that is because we tend to look at the world from our own lens and from our own perspective. So we are used to seeing things and considering things the way that we're used to doing. And so there's times that there may be warning signs or, or um, shifting mental health in front of us, and we don't really know how to interpret that that's what we're seeing. So, for example, let's say we had a teacher um, and the teacher is seeing a student that doesn't really hand in their homework, doesn't really do classwork, and, and, and the teacher, um, through their teacher lens, may see this as a student being less committed than someone else, um, and maybe a student who's kind of slacking off or something. But if we were to look at that through a different lens, we might be able to come up with a different a different take on that. So perhaps this is a student with a difficult situation happening at home, maybe a death in the family, a move, some kind of a stress that's really having an emotional toll. Uh, so when we're looking through kind of our customary perspective, sometimes we miss some of the signs or the other ways of interpreting something that might be there in front of us. 
So in addition, another reason that we want to talk about mental health is that there's a huge impact uh, when somebody is experiencing difficulties with their mental health. So we have disruptions and an impact in all these different categories. So there's there's impact for the individual. Um, often that looks like an increased sense of isolation, feeling misunderstood, just difficulties and impairment in typical functioning. In the family, it really starts to impact all the relationships, all of the different interactions, all the different roles um, that happen within the family, uh, in the environment that the person encounters on a day-to-day -day basis, whether that's school or employment or something else entirely, we can see difficulties in role functioning, environments that don't really know how to be supportive of the person. And then within the community, there is high correlation between difficulties of mental health, substance abuse, homelessness, emergency room utilization, issues with veterans, and with the criminal justice system. And so when all of those are taken into account, uh, if we consider that men mental health being addressed um, could certainly alleviate many other um, areas in the community as well. Another piece that we want to think about is the idea of stigma and why we need to um, understand mental health a bit better. Stigma is when a perceived negative attribute is so one small piece of a person that is negatively assessed, um, and in this case, mental health, then carries over and becomes the way that the entire person is assessed and in the entire person is thought of in, in some kind of less than way. And this leads to a lot of um, discrimination, fear of those who might be experiencing some kind of mental health concern. And uh, when, when these are the, pre the prevalent messages in our society, there can be a lot of impact. And the impact that we tend to see is that people who are experiencing difficulties with mental health, they, they seek help much more frequently. There's often a delay in the treatment that they do seek. There's a lack of engagement and an in increased sense of isolation. People tend not to feel like they're very efficacious and able to do what they need to do to take care of, to take care of mental health. But when that message in society is that mental health is bad uh, or that it's, it's not okay to, to address this or to think about this or it's not really even a thing, then it impacts help-seeking behavior. And that has a really um, that has a really negative effect, as we can see here, on prognosis, on, on a person's engagement and, and support in the community, and ultimately on their long-term outcomes. So that we can't really underestimate the role that society and uh, the, the way that society is looking at mental health and that role of stigma uh, on the individual uh, who, is, who is struggling. And so that's part of what we want to look at today as well is kind of thinking about how do we how do we shift that that community understanding so that mental health and shifting in me mental health becomes more normalized. When I was developing this program, I spoke with some people in our community who work in different areas, um, different organizations with different populations, and asked about what what do you see? What are your concerns? What would what do you think people want to know about mental health? Where do you think the roadblocks are right now? And the the these were many of the responses that I received. So people saying, you know, I don't think people really know how to be helpful, worrying that they're going to make it worse, feeling kind of unprepared, uninformed, not really knowing what am I responsible for. If I do initiate contact, what do I do next? And so I would just say to you now, just kind of look through this list and think for a second, you know, what in here have you thought? 
Or what have you heard other people mention or talk about? And the idea here is that this course really um, seeks to address some of these hesitations and, and leave people feeling informed and empowered so that these are not reasons to, to kind of shy away from the topic of mental health. And then lastly, uh, why are we doing this course? And, and I already touched on this because we want to we want to we want to empower our community and really reinforce the idea of pro-social values and connection within our community. And as we're going to look at shortly, mental health is really our general well-being, and all of us experience a fluctuation in our general well-being. And so when that can become normalized, and we can talk about that as a as as a typical experience, then we start. To to feel like we're in it together and and can be seen and understood and connected when we're when we're going through something difficult. I think it warrants mentioning here that our culture doesn't always really support that. Uh, we have we tend to have really busy schedules. We tend to like to think we can operate very independently. We have this real big emphasis on digital technology that that changes the way that we interact with people in, out in public and in the world, um, or does some of are interacting for us. And so it does make sense to kind of think of some of those issues in conjunction with mental health and how that stigma and that kind of culture around mental health has, has developed. And you do actually have a question um, from okay. Karen Kaplan. Okay. Uh, said, uh, do you have recommended phrases or wording to reduce stigma? Yes, hang with us and we will get there, I promise. So now we're gonna look at what is mental health. Okay, so mental health includes our emotional, it, it, this is our general uh, well-being. So it includes our emotional, our psychological, and our social well-being. So emotional has to do with our feelings, um, their intensity, how we um, experience them, how we express them, how we regulate them. Um, so really our, the, the wide range of our emotional experience. Psychological has to do with our kind of cognitive thinking patterns and our identity patterns. So things like how we interpret what's going on around us, our perspectives, our biases or assumptions, and as well as how we think of ourselves, how we present ourselves, how comfortable we are with the way that we present ourselves. So all of that kind of goes together under psychological. And then the social piece has to do with our relationships and our interactions with individuals, with communities, with the systems around us, um, and can be kind of a wide range of relationships as well. So this gets impacted. Um, our emotional and psychological and social state impacts how we think and how we feel and how we act. And it's also impacted by those things. Um, as well as our levels of stress, our relationships, our decision-making. And I think that that's a lot of information. And so I tried to represent this as a visual, which I think makes a lot more sense in terms of, of um, thinking of mental health. So we have mental health as this kind of umbrella term. Um, and underneath the umbrella, we have all of those different components. So you can see all the elements from the previous slide, as well as some others. These ideas will kind of continue to be reinforced as we continue through this program. It is worth noting that mental illness is just one of the many components of mental health. We will talk briefly about what mental illness, um, about what about mental illness and what it is and um, how it's different. But for, for right now, we can see that mental illness is just one category underneath the, the mental health umbrella. So mental health, if it's if we're talking about mental health as our general well-being, um, this is not an either or. We don't either have mental health or not.
We don't have good mental health or bad mental health. Our mental health kind of operates on a continuum uh, between healthy and unhealthy. And you can you can kind of uh, skim through some of these terms here that, that kind of characterize both ends of the spectrum. So one is really a little bit more balanced and and feeling feeling stable, feeling well, a sense of purpose, and feeling kind of grounded in in day-to-day life, where on the other end, we have feeling less stable, maybe a little bit chaotic. Some part of that umbrella is not quite lining up in a way that makes us feel like ourselves or like we're, we're standing on solid ground. Different areas on that umbrella can be at different places on the continuum. And so we may be doing pretty well overall, but we are really struggling with some relationships. Um, and that may shift the entire umbrella a little bit more in a, in a disrupted direction uh, because they all kind of play off each other. Uh, it, here, I like to just make a note that it's important to distinguish between mental health and mood. Mood. mood is really our feelings and the emotional experiences that uh, are a barometer of like our, our, our responses and our reactions to, to what's happening on a day-to-day basis. So our mood changes quickly. It's in response to triggers and, and it can shift a lot of times in the same day. Um, where mental health is a little bit more of a stable concept than that. So it certainly can change. Um, um, in response to triggers, but it tends to change more slowly and in, in response to larger triggers. It tend, those triggers tend to have more lasting consequences or, or impact a lot of the areas under that umbrella, and they tend to last for a more prolonged period of time. So it still can shift based on circumstances, absolutely, um, but it tends to be um, uh, more slow-moving and bigger picture than mood is. And um, that's often something that people wonder about. So I've included this here because I think uh, it's still a continuum of mental health kind of indicating a healthy end and a, and a less healthy end. But I like to point this out because I think this helps us um, think of mental health in parallel to physical health. If you think about that parallel, people can, again, be at any point on this continuum. You can move back and forth. People can make choices to kind of support where they are on the continuum, but there are also circumstantial situations and triggers that can impact that as well. And if you if you think about physical health, that yellow reacting area is really can be equated with the experience of having the common cold. So the cold comes up, it kind of interferes with what we're doing for a little while. Um, there's some temporary distress, but then it goes away and we move on uh, relatively kind of short term um, and, you know, interrupts what we're doing to some extent, but you know, life continues on largely unimpacted. The orange area, we can think of maybe more like a broken bone. So there's some greater impairment. Functioning becomes a little bit more limited. The healing process is longer. Uh, We can still go about daily life, but we probably have to adjust a little bit more and make some more accommodations. Um, And then on the ill end of the continuum, I like to think of this as kind of like a chronic condition, perhaps something that has a cure, perhaps something that doesn't and is something that is managed over time. You can equate this to something like diabetes. So if it's managed, so diabetes, obviously something that can't be cured. So, if, and, and certain um, mental illnesses fall into that same kind of category, not something that's cured, but managed over time. So if something's managed effectively, 
You can move back down toward the yellow and green areas on the continuum. And when there's a lot of disruption, it might move back up toward the, to, toward the red area. So you can see on this continuum that there's two places where mental illness is mentioned, one on the kind of ill end when maybe the mental illness is emerging or really impacting a person. And then down in the healthy end in the green part as well, um, where somebody is able to manage and is more of a state of recovery. So having a mental illness doesn't mean that a person lives their life at this constant dysregulated ill end of the spectrum. It's quite possible to be to be living with um, a healthy state of mental health, even with a diagnosed uh, mental illness, which again, we will talk more about actually, I think right now. So what is a mental illness? Um, a mental illness is a diagnosable mental disorder and a condition. It, there's a manual that is used to um, diagnose these by mental health professionals, counselors, therapists, um, social workers, psychiatrists. And what we see happen with a diagnosable mental illness is, is very significant changes in thinking, um, emotion, and behavior or action. And those significant changes have really notable distress and interference in functioning. So this is above and beyond what we would typically expect from some kind of an environmental trigger or something like that. What we tend to see, um, what, we, what we often see, though not all the time with mental illness, is that there are, um, it's not uncommon for there to be some kind of a biological predisposition or a genetic predisposition to a mental illness. And then when that predisposition is coupled with specific environmental stressors or, or life circumstances or triggers and is, is kind of um, connected with specific stages of life, like adolescence, early adulthood, um, a lot of mental illness emerges then. As those things kind of come together, then that, that tends to be when mental illness emerges. That is not always the case. There is not always a genetic predisposition. There are not always life stressors or kind of triggers. People have mental illness emerge at different stages of life. Um, so I don't want to make it sound like this is a, a one-size formula, but it is not uncommon to see um, some of those pieces come together. Another thing I like to point out with regard to mental illness is that there's a lot of portrayal of mental illness in the media around us. And whether that's in kind of fictional media or actually represented in things like the news. And for the sake of reducing stigma, I like to point out that people who are diagnosed with a mental illness are not really high risk for hurting other people or harming other people. Um, it is much more likely that someone with a mental illness would self-harm rather than, than harm someone else. We also hear sometimes about mental illness being associated with some of the more severe symptoms of mental illness. So things like disruptions in um, the way we perceive reality. So hearing or seeing things that are not really there, which are called hallucinations or believing things to be true that really aren't true, which are called delusions. And those certainly can happen in, in specific mental illnesses and in more severe cases. But that is also not a universal for somebody who has a diagnosable mental illness. It's much more common that you see kind of this shift in um, the way we look at the world and think about the world, but still have it be based in reality. Um, that, that disconnect from reality is not nearly as common as I think the, as we see in, in different forms of media. So for 
the sake of this program, that is going to be what I talk about in terms of mental illness. There's many different categories. Um, I've listed them here. At the end of the presentation, there are additional resources listed for some of the more common mental illnesses. So it's possible if you would like to do a little bit more research, you certainly can. Um, I would also add here that if, if you really are interested in more of these specific disorders, the mental health first aid training that Bradley Hospital um, runs in our area. Uh, they do a great job talking about these in more detail. For the purposes of today, I don't because my goal here is for you to be able to kind of recognize when mental health is shifting so that you can intervene um, if it feels like the right thing to do for you. But you as a person who's not a mental health professional, you don't need to be able to diagnose specifically exactly what's happening. You just need to be able to recognize that something's happening and then be able to approach somebody and help them get connected with someone who can figure out exactly what's happening. So I leave that, leave those options for you if you would like to pursue this further. So now that we have kind of a conception of mental health and a conception of what mental illness is, um, I would like to talk a little bit about how we promote mental health. Um, we're going to be talking a lot for the rest of the presentation about what do we do when it shifts? How do we recognize that it's shifting? But I would like to kind of start by highlighting that we can do things to try to promote mental health in the first place. And if, if we do start to experience kind of a move toward that more unhealthy end, there's things that we can do to try and shift that back. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not, and we need more intensive support, but this is kind of a starting place. Again, I'm not going to read through every single element here. You will have access to the materials after the fact. We can get them to you, but this is kind of a, a, a range of things that, that people can do to, to um, think about promoting and, and developing mental health. And a lot of it has to do with being able to kind of stay centered, acting in ways that are consistent with what you believe, taking breaks, um, having meaningful relationships, taking care of your body, looking at the role of spirituality and community, being a part of something bigger than yourself, that kind of connection out into the to other parts of the world, learning to regulate emotions. Um, there's a lot of information here about how we go about um, kind of nurturing uh, mental health. And when I do this presentation, the feedback I tend to get is that this is helpful for thinking about how do I help someone else kind of promote their mental health, but it's also really helpful for us to think about in terms of ourselves because we need to be able to take care of ourselves now. It, we need to be able to take care of ourselves and we need to do that now even more than ever with everything that's going on in the state of our world and, and the disconnection that we uh, many people are feeling. So I would just point out here that with COVID, some of these things are no longer available to us or they're available in different ways. So it becomes even more important to really think about which ones can I do? How do I adapt what I usually do? And really trying to make sure you carve out the time to do those things or to act in those ways that really do promote how you feel um, and that general well-being. Um, and I think that that is from my lived experience, as well as just conversations with so many people, that is even more, more important now than ever. Okay, so we want to think about what shifts mental health. You know, if, if what will start our well-being, um, you know, what will, what will move it in the direction of kind of deteriorating and make things more difficult for us? 
Uh, so we have here all different kinds of environmental changes and stressors. Um, so when we think about what can trigger a shift in our mental health, we're thinking about all these different areas in our life. And so it could be things like family issues, which are could be changes or things that are ongoing. And it could have to do with uncertainty with food or housing um, and, and having some of those or income, having some of those basic needs met. There can be changes in responsibilities, um, life transitions, different kinds of oppressions, discrimination, traumas, abuses. There's many, many different ways that a shift in mental health can be triggered. And what I would point out here is that during COVID, a lot of these things are either present to begin with and are then amplified during COVID, or the existence of COVID has caused some of these to emerge. Like for instance, maybe loss of employment, um, needing to move, certain uncertainties about housing or food, caregiving responsibilities, etc. So what we see right now is a lot of these emerging or, or um, kind of intensifying during COVID. And then we have biological triggers as well. Um, and those tend to do with hormones, kind of chemical balances and brain chemistry. Um, and that's what I was mentioning earlier when we were talking about mental illness. Adolescence and early adulthood tend to be times where we see biological pieces come into play because it is when hormones are changing and, and, and we see that kind of body chemistry start to shift. Uh, like I said, it's not always something that happens um, in conjunction with that, but a lot of mental illnesses do have a chemical brain chemistry element to them as well. And so when that shift starts to happen, um, that alone could be a trigger to seeing that deterioration. Okay, so if we have our triggers, why does mental health shift? Now we want to move to what, what does it look like? What are we looking for? How do we know that mental health might be shifting? So the first thing I would like to say is something I think is important to note because um, I've gotten some questions as I've done these presentation, or maybe not questions, but comments about people who have um, watched loved ones uh, become, uh, enter a very depressed state or an attempt suicide or complete suicide. And then a person I would like to say is there are not always outward signs and it is not anybody's fault when, when some kind of sign is, is not present or is missed. Um, sometimes these changes are nuanced and sometimes we're with somebody so much that we don't even, uh, or the, the change has been so subtle or so has occurred over such an extended period of time that we don't even really notice that it's happening. So I would like to just kind of preface that that, that is a reality some of the time. So these changes can happen quickly. They can happen over a prolonged period of time. They can be very pronounced and evident, or they can be more nuanced. Sometimes people will verbally express, first and foremost, I don't feel right. Something is off. This is not, you know, I'm not feeling well. Uh, but very often you can also see some of these, some of these changes happening before anybody verbalizes anything. And sometimes people don't ever verbalize anything. Either they don't recognize it's happening, either they don't have the words to express um, or, or kind of put to it to explain what's going on. Um, some people may not want to express it um, and are, don't really know what to make of it and so have no desire to put it into words. And sometimes, like I said, people just aren't really aware that something is shifting. So it is not uncommon to see some kind of outward signs happening first. 
Um, this is also true, or maybe even especially true with children. While this program is not really designed to talk specifically about child mental health, much of the program also does apply to children. And this slide in particular, thinking about childhood mental health, um, we tend to see behavioral outward, outward signs more often than verbal signs. So you can see some different um, items in each category, um, the behavioral changes, emotional changes, and social changes. And we can also see these go in, in two ways. So sometimes it, things become more outward, more pronounced, so more emotional, um, more reactive, more expressive, or more aggressive. Or we can see the opposite, where somebody kind of becomes less social, less connected, and more emotionally restricted, more numb. So we can kind of see that go in two different ways as well. And as many of you, I'm sure, are already aware, this is one of the challenges in our virtual world right now um, during COVID is that we don't always, we can't always see these signs um, when we're interacting via Zoom or or however we're interacting virtually. I, as a as a teacher and as, um, as a student, I, I see this happening. Um, and I know that people who are doing work in the mental health field as well have said some of this is just hard to pick up on now. I'm not going to go over this slide, but this is just a, a visualization to kind of look at those different categories in our continuum and then looking at some of the changes that can, kind of the different levels of change that can occur, some of those signs that we're looking at. Uh, what I would like to point out here is that there's a category down here um, called changes in substance use. Uh, this program does not thoroughly look at substance use. There's just so much that goes specifically with that topic that um, we can't we can't do it all in two hours. But substance use and mental health are very closely intertwined. And so changes in mental health, they can impact the amount, the frequency, the purpose of substance use. And then ongoing substance use can also impact many areas of mental health. Again, if you think of all those terms under that umbrella, how many of those would be impacted by substance use? And so there really is a spiral between the two. And when you see mental health shifting or you see substance use shifting, um, it is it, it's it makes sense to think about the other as well and really consider that as well. Um, when we move into the second half of the program and we're talking about approaching people, I will also make reference back to, to, the, to the idea of substance use and, and some extra considerations to make as well. Those signs um, are kind of things that we might be noticing as um, as a person watching somebody else that we might be noticing. But we also want to think about what is happening inside the person who is struggling. And again, that could be somebody we're watching. It can be ourselves. These are not these are not things that are confined to some to someone else to some other. We all experience shifts in our mental health, and so we'll we'll see see many of these in ourselves as well. And again, many of these also apply to children as well. So we have different categories. We have, we have interferences in um, the cognitive piece, um, so our thinking, and, and what we will see a lot is the way that people think shifts. And so thoughts can start moving very quickly. They can become really obsessive, so they just won't go away. They can be intrusive, so they're things we don't want to be thinking about, and they're just there all the time. They can be things we're really worried about. It can also feel like they are moving faster than we can keep up with. It can be that cognitive piece becomes impaired in terms of reality testing. So we're not really aware of what's going on around us completely. You can see changes in memory, difficulties concentrating, or hypervigilance kind of being extra aware of what's going on. 
Physical changes tend to, well, obviously they're connected to our body. So we tend to see changes in energy, either excessive or absence of energy. We see sleep disturbances, and that can be difficulties falling asleep, staying asleep, getting enough sleep, being tired all the time. Um, there's a lot of different ways that sleep can become impaired. Fatigue, uh, people also often think is just kind of meaning really tired, but it's it's kind of a, debil a debilitating tired uh, where there's a, a physical, a lack of physical ability at the same time. It feels too hard for the body to really do anything. All right, and then, and then something that we um, often see is the, the, the presence of pain. Um, I shouldn't say often, but it's something we sometimes see is the presence of pain um, and that, that kind of psychosis somatic connection uh, with the with our mental health. The mind and body connection here is something that is often uh, apparent. So our psychological interference, so how does it interfere with our life in terms of our psychological pieces? So in terms of um, the way we think about ourselves and ourselves in relation to the world and in relation to our kind of emotional experience. So often feeling like somebody is singled out or judged or misunderstood and, and that sense of self is often really impacted. And then mood gets impaired. So again, it could either be that mood goes really low, really sad, really numb, or it can get elevated and agitated. But the thing that often accompanies a change in mood is difficulties regulating it. Uh, so either kind of over-expressing or under-expressing, becoming more impulsive in the expression. So that's a piece that, that can really start to interfere for the person who's experiencing uh, the disruption. And then social interferences. So when all this is going on, we tend to see people either become disconnected, more isolated. There can be consequences or impact in relationships. People are emotionally dysregulated. Sometimes that gets taken out in relationships. And so the social world starts to become impacted as well. All right, so I can't see you or hear you, but what I'm just gonna ask, you don't have to actually write anything down, but if you just think for a second, if you were to experience, say, one or two of those items from each of those four categories, that, those different kinds of interferences, so the cognitive, the physical, the psychological, and the social, if you could imagine your day and what you have to accomplish, the time you have to wake up, what you're responsible for, who you're responsible to, where you have to go, the schedule you have to keep, the work you have to produce, thinking about all of those different, the amount of sleep you need to make sure you get, thinking about all those things. If you were to experience some of those interferences in those different categories, just imagine how your day would be impacted and what that would be like for your day what wouldn't be able to get done, what would be impacted, what might not get done as well, or the way that you would like it to just kind of think it through that for a second. And what people kind of usually tend to think, again, if, if I could see you, <laughs> or if I could get some feedback, we could, we could have a little conversation. But for the sake of this presentation today, what usually comes up is that even a few of those disruptions or those interferences would really disrupt your day and make certain things really difficult. And Sometimes that would be actually accomplishing something, but sometimes it would be the consequences of not being able to do what you want as fully as you want. So perhaps it would be harder to meet deadlines I and mean, that would be kind of a really tangible consequence. But then perhaps at the end of the day, you're really tired and you have that, that just insurmountable kind of fatigue and your brain is just kind of going really numb and 
dull and but that's the only part of your day where you get to see your partner or your children or where you get to connect with other loved ones and so you can't do that as thoroughly as you want and so there's that impact on the relationship but then there's also the subsequent feelings of guilt or shame that you're not able to do that and then what does that do does that carry over and make it difficult for you to go to sleep because now you have this intrusive thought in your head and you just kind of can't move past the fact that you know you haven't been able to live up to that role the way that you want to so there's there's this spiraling effect and there's kind of this these consequences on different levels and when we think about somebody who's having um, trouble with mental health that's what we we need to keep that in mind as well that this it's not just as simple as the concrete level there's all of these other pieces that start to unfold as well this is this is my least favorite part of doing this presentation online um this is where we would like break into groups and we would talk about these cases and it's really you know, a little bit more interactive and a little bit more fun. Um, but on these kind of webinars, when we're delivering it through a webinar, it's really hard to do that. And when we come back together, um, it always seems like we run out of time. So I, I'm not going to do this in an interactive way, which does make me sad when I've had to kind of shift this part of the program. But what are you going to do? So you will get access to the slides and the slides have several different scenarios because I didn't know who would be here today. I didn't know who you would be most interested in thinking through. And so there's some adult scenarios, there's some adolescent scenarios, there's ones in schools, there's one outside of school. So when you get your, your slides, you will be able to read through and think through it a little bit more if you'd like to. So for the purposes of this, what I'm going to do is take two cases one in, and then one of them in particular we're going to track through the second half of the presentation just to kind of keep trying to bring this to life a little bit and give some concrete application as we go so the first time that we encounter these scenarios the thing these are the items we're thinking about so what are the signs that mental health might be shifting and what kind of interferences in functioning are present like as we just talked about and so our scenario that we're going to look at here are these two, but we're really going to primarily look at Olivia, who is a generally conscientious student, friendly. She starts missing homework assignments, doing poorly on tests. She's not really looking at those around her. Um, her appearance becomes disheveled. She's, she's moving quickly, kind of clutching her things to her um, and not spending as much time with her friends in between classes. And so what we want to think about then is, you know, what do we notice and why does that matter? So here you can see, so we have some of the signs that her mental health is shifting. So we can actually see behaviors changing. So that's a sign, right? Changes in behaviors. So missing assignments, her grades are going down on her tests, her appearance has changed, the way that she's kind of carrying herself and her interactions and with other people. So those are changes in behavior, uh, but they also can suggest um, changes in in her social world, changes in kind of her psychological well-being. We don't fully know or understand exactly where she's at with all those things, but we can speculate that there might be some changes in those areas too. And then her functioning has declined in school performance. And so she's not able to fulfill the tasks at school to the same level that she was before. 
It's having an impact on her peer relationship. So she's not able to kind of connect and engage in the same way that she used to. And she's just interacting with her environment in a different way, which is going to get her different responses and may really change how things are going for her. So again, let's pretend you had had a beautiful conversation and you created this chart. And then we're going to carry Olivia through the rest of our conversation here today. So this, this next half of our presentation is on how we approach and respond to somebody who might be experiencing some kind of struggles and then connecting them with some resources. And I had a question earlier about, uh, you know, language or how do we set the stage to not promote stigma. Um, and so hopefully over the course of this, there, there will be kind of different ways that you can think about that based on this half of the program. So again, thinking about why don't people approach someone when they have a concern? And this, when I was, again, when I was creating this workshop, these were many of the questions that came up. Um, people either had these themselves or had heard many other people say things like this. So, you know, what if I make it worse? What if I say something and then the person gets upset? Or what am I supposed to do next? What if I say the wrong thing? What am I actually responsible for if I say something? So again, just kind of look through this list and just see, or does any of this sound familiar to you? Have you felt any of these things? Do you, have you heard other people say these things? Can you imagine other people having felt this way? Because I think this is a place where many people find themselves. So to set the stage, I have one more little brief activity just to kind of think through for a second. If you can think of a, think of a time when a uh, difficult time that you had, um, and then think of the response that you got from someone else, and then just think through that response. What was helpful about it? What was not so helpful? Uh, had you, do you wish the person had done something differently? Um, was there someone who didn't respond that you wish had? Just kind of think about that for a second. Uh, just kind of like bring up that that experience for a minute. Again, if we were together and could chat, we might get a couple examples. And <laughs> what we tend to hear is that what you would have wanted in a response is generally what someone else would want in a response as well. We tend to wish somebody had been able to hear us, understand, validate what we're going through. You know, somebody to just be there with us, to hug us, to smile, to talk to, to let us cry, to kind of be there when we needed to take a next step. Uh, the, the reactions that were not helpful tend to be things where someone felt like they were judged, where they were alone, um, where they didn't really have any support where they felt like they were pitied um, or that they were kind of unrelatable and the other person, you know, couldn't really grasp what they were talking about. But most people, what they say they want is they wanted to be treated like they're themselves going through a tough time um, as opposed to some other, some different person, um, you know, that that is all of a sudden unrelatable. So most people who are struggling, they want similar things. They want to feel seen. They want to know that they matter. They want somebody to validate what they're going through, um, to believe that there's some hope. Uh, and, and we need to remember that we're all in this situation at different times. Um, so we're not talking about some person who's going through something that is absolutely unimaginable and, and unrelatable. When people go through a difficult time, the time may be different, the triggers might be different, the way it's manifesting might be different, but the humanity of it is not really different. And so as we move through this section, I want you to hang on to that piece, that there's a whole lot of 
diversity in the way that mental health unfolds, but the humanity is not different. And so if we're approaching from a place of humanity and caring and consideration um, and well-intended in a well-intended stance, that's really the most important thing for us to, to hang on to. So if we remember that, now we will spend the rest of the section really thinking about how to do it as effectively as possible. Uh, but we do want to remember that starting place. And as we go through, um, I think it this is another place I want to kind of make a mention about substance use in particular. Particular. Everything that we're going to go through in the second half is applicable to substance use. The thing to remember is that no matter whether somebody's experiencing difficulties with mental health or struggling with substance use, the responses that you get are going to be different. You can you can you can approach somebody as effectively as possible, and you still can't control the response that you're going to get. So some people are going to be really grateful and be really relieved that somebody is approaching them, and others may get angry or they may kind of be in denial about what's going on. And then there's going to be a wide range kind of in between there. And these are difficult subjects. Um, not everybody kind of, you know, people people believe different things about mental health and substance use. And depending on their own awareness or the beliefs that are around them, um, responses can really vary. It is important, I think, to recognize that sometimes with substance use, the responses can be a little bit more volatile or less predictable. That is not always the case. And I don't want to make it sound like that is, it's a situation to be feared because it is not. But I do think it makes sense to do a little bit of extra research about substance use before approaching somebody about substance use. Um, and there's a lot of resources available to kind of help with that as well. And they are also included at the end of this presentation. The skills in here are applicable to both situations, or like we talked about kind of the interaction between the situations. The responses just may be a little bit different, but that's also going to be the case person to person, regardless of what's going on um, with the person. All right. So this is just kind of a, the, these are the steps we're going to go through. This is not an official uh, process of any kind, but it is a good way to kind of wrap your brain around um, thinking through the situation and, and trying to think through the different parts that we want to um, pay attention to. So we have to think about language um, and language matters when we're approaching somebody, but it also matters just in our everyday life. And so here I'm going to kind of talk about it in terms of everyday life because our language and our word choice and phrases, they're going to be throughout our, our this whole next part of the program. So in general, to come across as a person who is um, maybe sensitive to the idea of mental health, who understands that mental health fluctuation is normal and, you know, wants to be perceived as kind of a supportive person in that way. There's a couple recommendations I have in terms of language. So trying to avoid language that is potentially stigmatizing. And so some words are in and of themselves kind of send, they, they have um, a connotation from the history of mental health and mental illness, words like crazy and psychic psycho and borderline, those are often used in a derogatory way to explain behavior or, or person's actions in some way. But it, the history of those words is loaded. And if somebody is experiencing difficulties with mental health or mental illness, these words are particularly triggering. I'm not an advocate of removing the word crazy from our entire vocabulary. I think there's times where it's perfectly acceptable to say, wow, that's so crazy. But maybe we don't say it about people or we don't call somebody's actions and behaviors or reactions 
crazy. That that distinction can feel like a like a big distinction for somebody who's struggling. I hear I I work with a lot with young adults and some phrases that I tend to hear a lot are things like, oh, I just die or oh, I just kill myself in reference to trivial things or fleeting circumstances. And if said in the presence of somebody who really is struggling or really has suicidal ideation or really is questioning whether life is worth living or even is just in a really awful place, those kinds of sentences feel really dismissive and and make a person feel like the person saying that phrase is not safe, um, is not somebody who can really understand or be trusted with the magnitude of what's going on. And then I also tend to hear things, um, phrases that are actually either a diagnosis or an actual condition being used kind of flippantly. And again, it's some of these words like anxiety, depressed, um, those those are legitimate feeling words as well. And so there's a time and a place to, to say, oh, I've been experiencing a lot of anxiety during COVID. <laughs> you know, I think that that makes a lot of sense. But to... to I've heard students get a grade on a test and go, oh, I'm just so depressed now. Um, and that kind of flippant use of those of that terminology, again, it just, it sends the message that, that that person doesn't really understand the magnitude of what some of those feelings are actually like. And therefore, somebody may be hesitant to, to open up and to approach someone. And then it makes the, the community around the person who's struggling feel like it may not be that supportive. I had somebody say to me once that she wished that we would stop talking about people's, you know, people's appearance in a kind of superficial way and instead of kind of complimenting or commenting on, you know, physical attributes, start saying things like, oh, you look really healthy. You look like you're feeling really well as this way of kind of promoting this pro-health atmosphere, which, which I thought warranted a bullet in my PowerPoint. So all of this taken together just really is about creating kind of an emotionally safer community and, and you know, being an ally to those who are struggling, again, because we all struggle and we all are going to be in that situation at some point as well. So again, before we, before we approach somebody, we want to consider the context of our relationship. I would say there's very few situations where the context of your relationship is going to preclude you from acting or from doing something, but it's worth thinking things through, kind of reflecting on the fact, is there a power dynamic involved in this relationship? How well do you know this person? How often do you see this person? How reliable is your observation in that, you know, you've seen it happening a great deal? or it's something that caught your attention once, but it's kind of not sitting right with you, just kind of thinking through the details of the situation because it just kind of informs how the approach you might want to take. And, and knowing that it probably in the end is worth approaching regardless of how you've thought through this piece, often because that gesture can make a person feel like they're less alone, feel like they matter, and increase the chances that they might actually get some help or move in a more positive direction and, and kind of minimize the risk that might be there. There is some research out there that looks at the role of supportive people when people are experiencing kind of mental health difficulties or or really extreme circumstances. And there is research that that shows that having social support, even if it's it's one person who um, you know you feel is 
aware of what's going on and connected to, um, that that becomes really protective. And we don't really know what, what other support people have around them. And so offering to become a person that is supportive and that can be there, even if it's just to, as a as a kind of a bridge to get a person to a different, to, a, a, to somebody else who could help more thoroughly, that can be one of the most protective things that a person has going for them sometimes. This one is really challenging during COVID. <laughs> um, not only do we only see people on the screen, um, so it's really hard to know what's going on with them. It's really hard to find a way to approach somebody. In an ideal world, we want to be thinking through ways to approach somebody that are not intrusive, that don't interrupt with their day and with their obligations. Uh, we want to be finding a location that's private so the person feels comfortable talking, um, but not so isolated that they can't leave, feel like they have a way out of the conversation if they want to. We're not trying to trap anybody. You want to make sure there's enough time so you can actually talk through things. And if there is a major concern, have enough time to be able to to do something about it and kind of take some next steps together. Uh, we want to think through who's in control in a certain situation. Um, you know, there's there's certain settings where like, it, it, like, say at school, for example, where there's certain settings where a teacher may have more control over a student. And so a student may be apprehensive to be able to walk out if they need to. So we want to just be thinking through all these things. And in an ideal world, we would take these things into account and make a plan accordingly. But I fully acknowledge that in the time of COVID, this is not always realistic. And so we may be having to weigh things like we may not be able to be super close to somebody when we see them. And so does that compromise privacy? We may be more likely to reach out on text or arrange a phone call because we may be able to have a lengthier conversation or a more private conversation. So Again, different kinds of considerations at different times, but it warrants kind of thinking through some of these topics. Okay, so now we're really gonna talk to somebody. So we want to think about how we communicate. Our communication needs to be genuine. Uh, so it's not forced, it's not fake. We want to be curious. So we are not interrogating. We are genuinely interested, we're not judgmental, we're not criticizing, we're just wondering what is going on. Uh, you want to be able to convey that the person's situation is important and it matters, uh, but it's also not insurmountable that we can join together and we can we can figure out next steps that that can start the process of moving toward some kind of relief. We want to be objective, which means that this is not about us. <laughs> this is, we are not trying to personalize this. We're not taking it personally. Um, we are not turning this into a conversation about our own experiences. There can be a time and a place to say, to kind of normalize, oh, I know I've, I know someone who's been through something similar. There can be a time and a place for that. We'll talk a little bit about that in a, in a moment. But really, we're trying to understand the person that we're talking to in that moment. We want to know their experience. So we are really just trying to listen and believe what is being said um, and demonstrate warmth and caring at the same time. And we want to be not confrontational. We're trying to gather information. We are trying to understand what's going on, not because we need to have some magic solution, but because we want the person to feel like they're being heard and so that we can make some plans together. So we are really trying to stay value neutral here and there isn't really any room for judgment. So we have kind of these 
four steps here. Again, some artificial steps, um, not an official process of any kind, but just some things that we want to be thinking about as we move through the conversation with somebody. So you have here on the slide A, we'll go through A through D here. So the first step is actually, you know, coming up with something to say and saying it. When we're reaching out to somebody, we want to we want to use some I statements where we're talking about what I notice, what my concern is, because this is about we want to we want to be able to state what our observation is, and so that does not so that the I statement allows us to not blame or kind of place shame on anybody. We are just describing a behavior that we see or a situation that we see without any labels, and then we are expressing some concern about it. So. From this point on in the program, there's a lot of phrases and sentences that I've included, and they can feel kind of artificial at first, and it can feel weird to say them. But if you practice and you use them, they will start to feel more natural and genuine with time. You can also kind of develop your own phrases as long as they kind of have the same sentiment to them. All right, so so when you first are reaching out, we're we're gonna notice a behavior and, and point that out and express some concern. So I'm gonna continue along with Olivia's case that we started a little while ago. So we might say something like, Olivia, I've noticed, you know, Olivia, I've, I've noticed you aren't turning in assignments. Um, and that's usually really important to you. It seems like you're not quite as connected to the people that are going on. I'm just really worried about that. You know, what, what what's going on? And being able to highlight the behaviors that you see and express some concern. So in theory, you would then get a response. And then whether you do or not, we kind of want to get some more information. And we want to give the person a chance to tell a little bit of their story. This is where we're going to be kind of warm and, and open to what is being said. So that's going to be some open-ended questions. You know, tell me more about, you know, what do you think about that? Can you, can you explain that some more to me? And what we're trying to understand is what is going on? Um, where is their mental health at? Is that something we, you know, that is starting to shift? And if there's any current risk of harm. So maybe Olivia says something like, oh, I, I don't know. Uh, my parents just told me they're splitting up. And then you can use one of your open-ended questions and say, wow, like, how are you doing with that? Or how are you feeling about that? And, and just get some more, try and, try and open the conversation to get some more information. While the person is talking, we need to be listening. Um, and I think active listening gets a bad rap sometimes. It's I think there's times it's become like this. I don't know. It, it, I think people think it's this kind of artificial thing, but it's not. And when we're actively listening, our body suggests that we care and it is open. It is mirroring our feelings. So we're trying to be open. Our arms aren't crossed. We're paying attention. Um, but then some of the most important parts have to do with how we respond back after somebody gives us information. And this is the part of active listening that I think um, gets underestimated and sometimes can feel mechanical, but it's not just something to kind of check off. It's not some to-do list that we need to, to do to, to check the box off. We really, the goal here is to make sure the person, the, to make sure that we truly understand what the person is saying, and then to make sure that that person feels like we understand what they're saying. So when I'm summarizing back what I hear, I'm not trying to just say, oh, good, I summarized back. I'm really trying to make sure I understand what's going on. And then I want to make sure that the person I'm talking to feels like I really get it. 
So let's imagine that Olivia says something like, I, you know, I'm just so upset. My parents are divorcing. I feel like I can't get out of bed. I feel like I can't concentrate on anything. You know, nothing, just nothing's really worth it anymore. It just all feels like a big mess. So we then may paraphrase back like, wow, it, it really sounds like everything's just so overwhelming right now and really having a big impact on what you feel like you can do. It just really sounds like it's interfering. Um, and being able to, we don't have to use exact words, but we can, but really being able to convey back that message. And that leads a person to be able to feel validated. And so we want to convey that, yes, I am hearing you and also, I can see how you might feel that way. We want to help a person to feel like their experience makes sense given the circumstances that they're in. Doesn't matter if you would do the same thing or if you would feel the same way. It's about understanding that given what's going on, this makes sense and, and this is hard. So we can say things like, you know, I can see how you could feel that way. Um, anyone would have a hard time with that. Of course you feel that way. You know, no one would expect anything different right now. Being able to kind of validate that. And so with Olivia, we might say something, you know, something like, you know, I can, I, I can really see how everything would feel so overwhelming right now. It's hard to do the things you usually do because such a huge part of your world is changing. Like that makes a lot of sense. And being able to, to put that back or, you know, I, I can see how you feel like things are a mess right now. It's just, that's a huge piece of news to get from your parents. Being able to put it back and, and acknowledge that this is a big deal. Two things we want to avoid in this situation and people do them a lot and they're really well-intended, but they just don't work, unfortunately. One of them is to, to compare. A lot of times people will say things like, at least it's not this, that would be so much worse. Or, or telling a story about something that somebody else went through and say, see, it could be so much worse than that. People usually do that to try to make a person feel better by pointing out that it could be worse. But unfortunately, it's usually interpreted as kind of minimizing their experience. It makes the person feel like, wow, I probably shouldn't feel this bad. And when we're trying to approach somebody and find out what's going on, that shuts the conversation down instead of us ever really getting the information we're looking for, then we can't help with next steps because we've kind of ended the conversation at that point. The other thing that we don't want to do is just jump to solutions too quickly. We don't want a person who feels like willing to be left on their own. But if we move too quickly to a solution, the person can feel like they don't have a lot of options or autonomy. And if we jump to a solution first, usually a person doesn't feel like they've really been heard or understood or that their experience is validated. It just seems like, oh, we just got to go do this and everything's going to be fine. And people don't like that. People really want to feel like they have, um, that, that what they're going through matters and, and it's legitimate. And then people usually can kind of rally and get to a next step together. So up to this point, you've kind of started this conversation, you're getting some story from the person you're talking to, kind of validating what they're going through. So it could be going very well. Um, and you know, you could be happy with the direction it's going, information could be coming out and you know, the conversation could be continuing. It, it, the conversation also could have ended by now. You know, Somebody may have had a reaction that was not what you anticipated. They may have just kind of shut the conversation down and said, no, everything's fine. And that's okay. And it is okay also to approach the person again at a later time. If you 
you still have concerns at a later time or you still see certain patterns unfolding. What's important in that first interaction, even if it ends quickly, is that you've you've expressed concern and you've tried to kind of figure out what's going on a little bit. And now this person knows that you're a caring person and they may never approach you again, or they may, at least they know that you are somebody that they could approach if they need to. And it is perfectly appropriate for you to approach somebody again if you feel like you still need to. Um, if the conversation is still happening, it, you may feel completely capable of handling what's going on. And you may feel like if you and the person you're talking to are just need to maybe work on some of those areas to promote mental health, it may be kind of a, a simple solution that the two of you can work on together. Or you may find that you need some extra help, or this is kind of bigger than you anticipated, or um, something that, that needs um, to be addressed further. So we're going to move to that now, in case that is what's going on. So it is possible that your conversation has moved toward an acknowledgement of suicidality or self-harm. There are other trainings that go into great detail kind of about what to do in this case and assessing for these in great detail. I'm going to try and offer information that the first thing to know is that having a conversation about suicidality and self-harm does not plant ideas in someone's head. Um, a lot of people have that fear that if you bring it up, now they're going to think about it. Um, and the reality is that um, somebody is either already thinking about it or they're not. And if you bring it up, that's not going to change their desire in that, in that area. So please ask questions if you have concerns. We'll go over kind of how to ask some of those questions. But if you ask someone, you're giving them the opportunity to, to verbalize and take out of their brain what is going on. And, and that alone takes away some of the power of what they're thinking and feeling inside. Being able to have a conversation about it, feel like another person knows, maybe have a sense of, a little sense of accountability to somebody else. Um, none of those are bad things. And it, it is okay to be having this conversation. So you want to stay calm, you can ask directly if somebody is, you know, saying things that make you wonder or acting in ways that make you wonder, it's okay to ask directly. You want to let them know you care about them and their well-being, and you want to express concern about what the consequences would be. You don't want to debate the, the meaning of life and you don't want to try to convince them, but you want to express in that kind of warm, caring way, like, wow, it it would be so awful if something were to happen to you. I That would make me and so many people so sad. That expresses warmth and caring. It, it's not about trying to make a person feel bad or guilty. It's about kind of sharing that moment of humanity. If you feel like you're trying to convince somebody or make somebody feel guilty or bad, that is not the pathway to go down. That is not where we want to be. So if we have Olivia, and in, in our earlier conversation about Olivia, she mentioned possibility that, or she mentioned that nothing really feels worth it anymore. So we might, we might say something like, you know, Olivia, you mentioned that nothing really feels worth it anymore. And I'm wondering what you mean by that. You know, have you, have you had any thoughts of hurting yourself? or wanting to die? Have you done any self-harm? And it's okay to bring that up and, and, and kind of put that out for, there for her. And so if she, if she does respond that she has, we then can be saying something like, wow, you know, I'm so sorry you've been feeling that way. That has to feel pretty awful. You know, I, I want you to know that I care about you and I would hate to even imagine how many people would be so sad if, if something were to happen to you? Do you think we can talk some more and maybe try to find a plan to get some extra help so that you don't 
have to feel like you need to hurt yourself anymore. We can, we can put that out there and express the concern in a warm, caring way uh, without making somebody feel like they're judged or shamed or guilty. So if a person is expressing suicidality, um, these are things you want to do. You want to stay with the person. They shouldn't be alone. You can either get them connected to somebody who can stay with them, or you can get them connected with the actual help. There are... Um, there are hotlines, there are text lines that that are available 24-7. It is possible to go to an emergency room for a psychiatric evaluation to get access to inpatient mental health services. We have um, Behavioral Health Link, which is another way to access support quickly. So we want to get somebody connected right away. Um, to services um, if they're if they're feeling suicidal and and expressing that they can't stay safe. If somebody is engaging in self-harm, you don't have to follow this process, but if you have serious concerns and you think that they're really not going to be safe, then you can follow this exact same process. You need to feel okay about leaving the situation. And if you don't, then it makes perfect sense to, to follow this more completely. If somebody is engaging in self-harm, but you are okay to leave a situation, and if that that means taking additional steps and that's what we need to do. So I'm going to continue on because there's more uh, information about um, process. Okay, so who might need to know? Depending on the situation, there are a wide range of people that you may feel like you need to involve. There is not a hard and fast rule. The, the rule that I would follow is if there's somebody expressing suicidality, then somebody needs to know either who can get them connected to help or who is the help themselves. If we, if people are being harmed in any way, so that can be things like self-harm, abuse, domestic violence, bullying, human trafficking, um, any other kind of violence, other people need to know. And who needs to know is going to depend on how old that person is, who is the person that is being harmful. Um, and you, there's, there's a list of people here that you can turn to depending on what's going on. You aren't bound by confidentiality. You are not doing your, you're not approaching this person in a, profess, in a professional context or a therapeutic context. So you want to exercise discretion and respect privacy, but you are not bound by any kind of confidentiality. So ideally you want the person you're talking to, to be on board and working with you to, to decide who's going to be approached and how they're going to be approached. But there may be times that you need to get connected with somebody else, even if the person is not on board. And at the end of the day, when you leave the situation, you need to feel like it, it's okay. And so even if there is no clear cut reason why you think somebody else should be involved, the reason could be that it is simply too much for you to hold by yourself. And that is a completely legitimate and valid reason to involve somebody else in the situation. So again, we would like to be able to do this together. We want to, um, you know, you can, you can role play, you can brainstorm how to say it, you can go together, you can kind of practice so that the individual feels more comfortable accessing more resources. Um, you can look up resources together, you can make the phone call together, you can accompany them to a first appointment, you can, you can, the person can do it on their own and you can check in later. There's a lot of different ways that this can um, unfold and that should be a conversation that you're having with the person as long as they're, they're interested.
Okay, so here we just have some different phrases. So when you, if there's times you need to express um, that you really think this this requires extra help, that can be a tricky topic to to um, broach. And so he, I've included a lot of ways that you can try to go about bringing that up. Um, and you also want to think about figuring out what else, um, what other help is already there. Who else already knows? Are they supportive? You know, who who does the individual think they can talk to? Um, who else might be useful to them? How do they think? other people would respond. You can kind of ask through some of these things and have a conversation about this to help the person kind of identify who might be a good person because it may not be the most obvious person right away that, that we think of. And so really, um, no matter what our words are, though, you, you want to send the message that we need somebody else involved. So we, we, it would be better for both of us if there was, if there was somebody else. So we have these, you know, pro kind of pros and cons of contacting someone against the individual's wishes. Um, you know, the individual, they could get upset and stop talking to you. Um, the new contact could make the situation worse. That is not unheard of. I've had adolescents who adamantly don't want to tell their parents something because they're terrified they're going to make it worse. And sure enough, they do. <laughs> um, but sometimes a parent needs to know and we have to deal with that together. And in those situations, it can be that you also include somebody else who can mitigate maybe some of the parent's reaction. But there's also a lot of benefits um, if the person really doesn't want you to talk to somebody, but you really feel like you can't be the only one. Um, there's a, there are also potential benefits to including somebody else. You may be connecting them to somebody who is better positioned to help them. You know, you won't be the only person knowing and feeling like you have all this responsibility. So it, it does make sense in, in a lot of situations to, to try to get somebody on board, even if the other person doesn't want to know, doesn't, or sorry, doesn't want you, doesn't want anybody else to know. Okay, so here is just um, some potential resources. So these are different ways, um, different categories of, of trying to access some help. So hotlines usually can be called 24-7. There are emergency mental health services. Um, like I said, Behavioral Health Link, um, the local emergency department, 911. Those are going to be for immediate intervention, um, usually for an evaluation for intensive immediate services. Then there's also the ability to, to just Google services, to look up counselors in the area, to look at the person's health insurance and see which providers are in the area that can be um, useful. Sometimes people need to get connected with resources and services, but it's not an imminent emergency. And in those cases, it's okay to do some research, find out who's local, who takes insurance. Um, and in that part, your role may be more about just kind of supporting the person while they look for those things or your the uh, resources that are available. All right. So as we as we kind of end that encounter and have, have worked to try to kind of get somebody connected with our services. So again, if somebody's expressing suicidality or severe self-harm, we're doing something immediately to get emergency services. If somebody is needing extra help, but not emergently, we can kind of go through some of that, some of that other process of, of figuring out who needs to be involved and how do we, what options exist around us. And if somebody is only just kind of slightly starting to shift or deteriorate, we can think about health and building it back up again. And maybe they can do that with community supports without professional services as well. So we think through that, we work through that, but then we also want to remember that at the end of the day, after all that is said and done, we're still working with and talking to a fellow human being. So follow back up. It makes sense to go back, see how they're doing, certainly have conversations about, about their mental health and, and you know their connection to other resources, but then also just to join together as, as people again. I think uh, something that comes up a lot is that 
people feel like once someone knows they're struggling with their mental health, they feel like nothing, they don't talk about anything else or they or they kind of get left out of other other conversations. So be really cognizant of that and join back together in the relationship you had before as a caring human being. Okay. I have typed up a hypothetical conversation so that so that you can see. This is occurring in a school. And so there's certainly a limit to the involvement of a school teacher. Really, at the end of the day, they're going to um, get the child connected to the guidance counselor. So maybe as we kind of close here, if people would like to work through a different scenario or want to talk about any of those 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 pieces where we connect somebody to a next step or how we handle that, uh, maybe we could even chat through that or brainstorm through that if that would be helpful to anybody. Because I believe at this point, that is the end of my, uh, my content. I like to just at the very end here, remind us that um, we all are in the position of having our mental health shift. That is that is nobody's unique experience. And if we could normalize that and become a person who is sympathetic to that and an ally, just imagine what our community could look like if, if we were all disseminating that same message. And then at the end, we have um, resources. So we will get the, um, the PowerPoint to you. And I'm going to stop there and I'm going to take questions. And if it would be helpful to think through another scenario, maybe we can get creative on how to do that. Yeah, so um, there was actually one question um, from Kristen Westmoreland. Um, what is a good way to nicely adjust someone else's language? Uh, you hear things that seem flipped or stigmatizing. Yeah, that's a good question. And it's a hard one. And it's not only prevalent in mental health. You know, I think there's a lot of a lot of places where we see that unfold. Sometimes, depending on a relationship, you can use humor. Um, sometimes humor is not appropriate. And I'm just thinking it, it's, I think it's different depending on the context. I think it's okay to say something like, what do you mean by that? Or, oh, I'm surprised to hear you say that. Um, and kind of flip it back a little bit to see, to kind of have the person have to stop short and, and kind of reflect on it for a second. Or, you know, to say something like, oh, I, I wouldn't have thought you would have used the word like that. I don't know. I'd actually be curious if other people have experiences about that as well. If anybody wants to offer that up in the chat or the, the Q&A as well. Thanks for listening. To find more content like this and see the video version of these webinars, please see the links in the description below. If you like this one, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.